Oh, that's true. Okay, we have a couple things, a couple orders of business. Yes, have you seen Five Nights of Fred? Five Nights at Freddy's. Yes, uh, I did, <laughs> and you'll be happy to know I saw it before going to see Killers of the Flower Moon, which wow. I still have not seen. Wow! Uh, oh my god! Probably this weekend, if not this I was week. Say, time was time but... was probably running out on that. Yeah. Man, uh, it looks like it's still in theaters for the this coming week. So I've been I've been making sure. Good, good. Well, yeah. So okay, Five Nights at Freddy's. What did you uh, think? I was trying not to fall asleep through a lot of the movie. <laughs> so, and it was only like a seven forty showing. Like it right. was, it's rough. Jeez, man, that's that's not a good sign. I was just watching. You know, you you catch clips uploaded on like Twitter or X or whatever bullshit it's called now, and like. Just the editing of that thing is so frantic and weird at times, like awkwardly done and just like even on a basic filmmaking level, I'm like, I am already very confused by how this scene is put together, you know, like. Uh, yeah, I, that's just, uh, I mean, I've I know never... it's watching out of context clips. Maybe that's not like. A... Yeah, that's that's a good point. Yeah. I, I have no real relationship with the source material, so there was no emotional connection going into it. Although yeah. I heard they've like added a lot comparatively to what it's originally right but it is the creator like pushing this type of more emotional core which i guess i'm okay with it is just a very bizarre movie uh, apparently um, wasn't yeah. very scary like there's some frighten frightening imagery at times but i was never i mean like i said i was falling asleep so i wasn't like scared for my life at any point um <laughs> that's good i'm I mean, also i never really went to a Chuck E. cheese growing up really like there were the there was one that was biased but i don't ever think i wow. went to one man i was like you know loved Chuck E. cheese but mostly i mean like this the thing is i think the thing that uh people get wrong about those things is that like i'm uh, maybe not wrong i guess no if I, I guess it gets it right because I was scared of the fucking animatronics at Chuck E. Cheese. They looked mm-hmm. horrifying. So I guess there's there's something there. But I maybe it's the creators of these places. They don't understand that kids just like video games and and arcades, right? That's why these things are popular. Yeah. You can completely axe the fucking animatronics. Like, it puts, like, a friendly face on it. But no kid out there is like, I love Charles E. Cheese, you know? Well, yeah, that's that's true. Uh, you know, uh, well, his friends call him Chuck. Chuck, yes, but, I'm, um, yeah. I don't know the man, so I didn't feel comfortable. <laughs> uh, it, it's like the introduction to horror. You know, it's, yeah. it's a horror video game, which which yeah. I heard the they were talking about it on Big Picture. Like the original game is kind of you're watching security cameras. That's, like yes. that's the so, whole playthrough okay. of it. Yeah, being a few years younger than you, I, I'm also still outside the age range age range to really give a shit about this stuff too right i'm not that young um but i did play the first game just because i have an interest in horror games i like checking out new ones i think i think it may have been free or something um okay and it was like on everything like i had it on my phone which is how i played it you know back when it came out did not like it did not find it to be a very engaging game uh the story behind it is interesting because it taps into a true crime thing where, like, it's based off of a real, like, murder, like, a, a real massacre, actually, that happened where a disgruntled Chuck E. Cheese employee came back to the Chuck E. Cheese after he had been fired after hours and, like, 
killed all the employees who were still in the building. Um, oh, wow. And I feel like a lot of the popularity of this franchise is tapping into, like, true crime for kids. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, that's kind of what it feels like, because it's got that at its core, and then yeah, the, the lore behind it is, like like that yeah it's it's using like a true crime right element of like you know something that happens and then incorporating the supernatural yes with it because i yeah and i feel like that's how they present the lore behind it is like it, it is like you know there was a there was a pedophile child murderer who ran these restaurants and like he killed all these kids and it does feed into that weird sort of fascination i think you eventually will have a true crime you know so yeah. Um, I understand his popularity. Like I said, I'm still outside of that. I have watched like lore videos in the past because I used to okay. have younger coworkers when I worked at the theater who were very into it and were you like, were, yeah, "Yeah, trying to associate with yeah, the kids." Yeah, exactly. I was trying you to get a, to speak yeah, exactly. the lingo. <laughs> totally. Yes. Yeah. So anyway, I, I'm probably not going to watch it, or at least like not for a while. I, I the stuff I've been seeing on has been very funny to observe from a distance. You know. So yes. Um, I, I think that's what you need to do. Like, when uh, you're drunk and high with a bunch of people, you've also <laughs> got your phone in your hand. A perfect movie for it. Oh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, totally. Uh, I, I did have other things to talk about in relation to Godzilla Day, but I think actually I'm going to save those for recommendations. Uh, okay. Because that incorporate, yeah. So, uh, hey, let's just get started. Look, we've been talking for about six minutes. You have no idea who we are at this point. So let, let's remedy that. This is The Weekly Podcast Massacre. And my name is Greg Gumbo, I think. Yeah, that's it. Yes. Uh, and I am here coming to you from Los Angeles, along with my co-host. Hello, my name's... Por- uh, whoa, that's not it. <laughs> Hello, my name's Michael from rainy Portland, uh, but everyone just calls me Murphy. Yeah, welcome, Murphy. Welcome. Uh, this is our third episode of November... And yep. uh, here on the Wicked Podcast Massacre, each month we delve into a different subgenre of horror. Uh, and this month, all of November long, we are talking about the theme of guess who we are having for dinner. It's cannibals. It's uh, man eaters. It's you know uh, flesh eating ghouls. It's it's all mm-hmm. just it's cannibalism. It's been one of my favorite themes in a while that we've done. Um, because I'm, I'm you've I'm been just, giddy all month long. Really, I'm so excited. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, boy, oh boy, do we have a real treat for people today. Um, this is. Well, I was gonna say I'm surprised you have so much blood in your brain, but if you're consuming other people's blood, then you'd have <laughs> extra to circulate yeah. the body. Oh yeah, yeah. It's all going. It's going to hard. another. Right. Exactly. Yes. Totally. It's going to another place, but yeah, there's plenty of the spare <laughs> for sure. Uh, yeah, today we are talking about 1972's Deathline, uh, directed by Gary Sherman, a British production, but with an American director, um, starring a fucking amazing cast. Um, it, it's a little known, not, maybe not little, I think it's getting better known as the years go on. There's, but... there's quite a few, uh, of the cast members that are amazing, but yeah. there's a couple that are not, and I'll leave it at that for now. I, I know who you're talking about, and I'm going to push back a little bit, but, you know, also, it's not going to be a thing where I'm like, you're completely wrong about this. This is actually amazing, because I, I kind of get it, you know, mm-hmm. and, like, there's some, I, somehow, in my busy, busy schedule, I found a time to watch a lot of, like, 
extra, you know, stuff about this, interviews and things about this movie. And they even joke about that. If if you're even okay. if you're talking about the same thing I'm thinking of. Um anyway, this is a uh movie about uh a cannibal living in the London underground who um when he realizes he's the last of his kind, decides to kind of start venturing forth a little more in search of a mate. Um, and it's about the uh, police inspectors who are investigating this, as well as a young, uh, you know, hip-swinging couple, an American and his uh, British lady, two college it students who get wrapped up in as well. Yeah. Do you think he is in Britain to get away from the Vietnam War? I don't oh, know. That dude, just, that just you know, came that's, to me thinking about the time. Yeah, absolutely. That could be a great. That could be a, that could be part of it for sure. Yeah. Um, there's a meta reason as to why he's here, which is kind of funny. Uh, okay. Well, I can get talk about that when we get to the cast, I guess. Um, but before we we dive in deeper, because as soon as I start in this movie, you know, strap yeah. in. It's going to get wild. Uh, before we get any deeper on that. Um, let me just real quick, I'll go over the cast and then we'll do recommendations and then we'll start talking about it. So, uh, top build and rightfully so is Donald Pleasance returning champion as Mm -hmm. Inspector Calhoun, uh, Norman Rossington as Detective Sergeant Rogers, the second in command, uh, David Ladd as Alex Campbell, um, I I will talk about him a little more later because I just want to run through this real quick. Uh, Sharon Gurney as Patricia Wilson, Hugh Armstrong as the man. We got Jane Turner as the woman, James Cossins as James Manfred OBE, Christopher Lee, returning champion, as Stratton yes. Villiers MI5, which is how he's built in this movie, which makes me laugh. Um, and then uh, Hugh Dixon as Dr. Bacon. Not like a super like vital character, but just a name I like, and I actually like his performance too. So, I I do too. I think it's funny. At one point, Donald Pleasance calls him uh, Dracula. Yes, and he does have a very kind of gothic looking. He absolutely does. Oh yes. yeah, I can absolutely yeah. see that too. Um, this was written by a man named Carrie Jones, uh, who seems like a really interesting character who'll also dive into a little bit more when I get into the history of this. But um yeah, that's our cast. That's those are our, our main players. I uh clearly I'm so excited to talk about this movie, but I gotta slow down. Let's get to recommendations. Yeah. yeah. You're like a little kid on Christmas Eve. Absolutely. Like you're just so excited. Yeah. Oh yeah. Finally be talking about Deathline. Yeah. Uh we're gonna pause Your parents though. are tired of hearing you talk about it. Your <laughs> girlfriend's like, ugh. When's he going to stop talking about Deathline? Oh, I know. I haven't talking about I haven't yeah. I was even bringing it up in therapy this week too, just talking about this movie a little bit. <laughs> like, well, hey, she's been asking what I was putting on my mind, you know? Like, I got to be honest. Uh, cannibalism. Okay, uh, I'm going to give you a referral to another <laughs> psychiatrist, Dr. Lecter. Hmm. <laughs> uh, so, recommendations. Sometimes we do like to talk about non-horror. Uh, and this is where we give ourselves the space to do it. Uh, Murphy, what kind of movies, books, TV, music, video games, in the non-horror categories have you been uh, enjoying lately? Uh, well, I'll give the big one second. I did watch The Discreet Charms of the Bourgeoisie, which is a uh, Louis Bunnell uh, movie, I believe I'm pronouncing that somewhat Fancy. correct. Yeah, uh, I got from the correct, the last Criterion sale. I find like I blind bought it and was like, you know what, I'm I'm done with all these horror movies. I can finally watch something like high art, 
And um, it's pretty funny. I enjoyed it. I'm excited to watch more of his films, but it yeah. is a very uh, meandering film. I don't know if you know this one. I think we might have discussed I've, it a little bit. A little before. bit. I know the title. I kind of know its reputation. I don't really know much about it other than that. I know I know Bunuel, and he's a, he's a very famous surrealist. I know that. Yes. So, yeah. Um, this one is very odd in that the whole idea of the story is like six people trying to have dinner together and it keeps getting interrupted for one reason or another. So it's just like a string of these situations of them like, oh, trying to share a meal yeah, and something happening, someone running away, someone being, uh, disgusted or, you know, other things like, uh, arrested or it's, it's very bizarre in the in its sense but it's very uh fun and like you said a, a great surrealist film yeah um, okay but nice. uh the great one that i saw this week is i went to go see the killer oh. since we last spoke and nice. it was fantastic i can't wait and i'm also scared to rewatch it because i think uh on netflix you know compression it's yeah. not going to be as captivating like all the details that man, are there are not going to be seen yeah. but man what a what a trip i'm very excited i think i might be seeing it tomorrow um okay. fincher to me is like a really good dad filmmaker i feel like dads yeah. get into his stuff so i think my i talked to my dad about it he seems like he might be interested in coming to, to la to watch it with me it's it's a great uh crime story you yeah. know and it, it's it's nothing um like wholly new i think it's the simplicity of it right. and a lot of people are uh interpreting like the character's perfectionism to david fincher and his filmmaking oh, sure. and that yeah. he's commenting on like his own process of making art yeah and that this guy's art is killing people and he, that he is yeah obsessive about it right He's done. He's done something similar like that with with the game before right about like kind of just weird menace of like you know it's about filmmaking it's about the weird like perfection i think yeah. a, a lot of his films are about people crafting their own reality like i think that's what the whole social network thing is is that this this loser was rejected and yeah. so he shaped the world around him going forward and we're still reeling with all of that today i feel like the same thing with uh girl with the dragon tattoo and like I still haven't seen Mank, but I feel like Mank, Mank something else. I liked Mank. Gone Girl, yeah. definitely. Dude, Mank, like, Mank has oh, that yeah, you're, abs- yeah, that's a great point. You totally does. Mank, I th- would say, also has it. Cause it's, I mean, it's about a literal guy who, you know, writes movies. Like, he's right. a filmmaker. One of and, the greatest movies of all time. Yeah, yeah. and it's, it's about his process kind of, like, butting up with, like, you know not you know the people other people How involved in it yes with exactly the studios and everything right. like that and then his, yeah. his relationship with the subject of the movie right because like he's writing it about um uh, william randolph hearst about hearst and it's about it, yeah exactly so it, and it's about morals within that system too it, i mank is pretty interesting i liked mank i didn't love mank but i, I need think to that see it. it's got some yeah. it's got a lot of stuff going for it but that's very cool i'm really excited to see it too um, I just love the posters they've been putting out for it, man. Like the sort of I'll like, have to check some of those out. Almost like it look like oil paintings, almost. I think. Okay, but just even like I, uh, I know the one where it's like him pointing the gun at. Yes. You. Yeah. Um. Okay. It, it's beautiful. Um. Pretty close to where I live, there's a huge billboard for it. Um. Mm. That I just I love seeing anytime I drive by it nowadays. 
so yeah, that looks fantastic. I, I just love uh, Fossbender's like fashion sense in these posters and images. Oh, like, it's so cool. Yeah, I, yeah. It's it's definitely if I could pull it off, it would be a fun <laughs> like Halloween costume. That's the beauty. You know, look, the beauty the of Halloween hat. is that it doesn't matter if you're pulling it off. It's just funny if you That's dress true. like you know what I mean. It's even better if you're not yeah. pulling it off. Almost. Um, uh, Tilda Swinton's great in it. Oh, love um, it. Love to hear that. Yeah, the the guy with I think it's James Parnell, the guy from like Top Gun Maverick. Yeah, yeah. And a couple other things. He uh is like in a in a part that is just fantastic. I I loved him in it and okay. uh yeah, it, I'm excited for you to t- uh, see it and we can talk about it. I can't wait. Yeah. Um okay, uh getting to my stuff. I got a, I got a couple I don't have I kind of have a lot but kind of not that much. Yesterday was Godzilla Day. Um Yep. You know, uh, me and you both huge Godzilla fans. It was a a big part of us, like becoming friends, and um, we're we're getting. Whoa, let's let's not use that word, okay? <laughs> Colleagues, sure, yeah, I yeah, because yeah, okay, okay, all right, all right, sure. Um, but uh, as Godzilla fans, we are getting spoiled. Uh, somebody pointed out there's two Godzilla movies, let alone a, in addition to a Godzilla TV show coming out with the next six months we have um i think first up is going to be monarch legacy of monsters right which i finally got around to less than two weeks yeah i think the 17th or something like that yeah um which looks pretty interesting i was watching i finally got around to watching trailers for it and like it's like oh shit like anders home from workaholics is in this like fucking john goodman's in it like you know uh obviously wyatt and uh kurt russell but like it's, I like between... how they're doing the playing the same character. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And there were just there were shots they were doing that were really cool, like just transitions mm-hmm. between the two different like timelines that are going to be jumping between. But in mm-hmm. even in the ads, they were like, "Hey, we went and shot on location in a jungle. Hey, we shot on location in a desert." And I'm like, "How is this getting it right?" And something like Disney Star Wars is getting it wrong, you know. Um, so that looks great. We do have, you know, 70 years worth yeah. of uh, IP to fall back on. Yeah, but it's still, I mean, like, I feel like nobody would be shocked if this show of all shows were like, hey, we shot with the volume and didn't actually go anywhere, you know. But no, they mm-hmm. actually went out and shot stuff on location. Um, we also have uh, Godzilla Minus One coming out. I secured yeah. tickets yesterday. Um, I got my tickets ready for that, seeing that. Uh, I cannot wait. Early reviews have been kind of trickling in a little bit out of Japan, and it's all very exciting stuff. The new trailer yesterday was fantastic. And then we have, uh, what is it, Godzilla X Kong, I think, next year. Um, yes. Which, goddamn. I mean, Ooh, looks like I yeah. can buy my Godzilla Minus One tickets, too. Do it, man. Absolutely Ooh. do it. This is like very exciting for listeners live on the air. Only, <laughs> only avail... Okay, so... Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, only one IMAX showing at 10.30. Hmm. My my first showing is not going to be IMAX, um, just because logistics. It's, it's going to work better if I do a non-IMAX one, based on what was available. But I'm probably going to do another IMAX one that same weekend, if I can. Looks like a 4.30 on the Monday the 4th. We'll, we'll do it. Okay, continue. Hell yeah. Um, yeah, so then yesterday, I was working all day yesterday. It was I've been very busy, but... Just in the background, I ran my own Godzilla marathon. Um, and so I watched King Kong vs. Godzilla. I watched uh, Godzilla vs. Megalon. 
I watched uh, what was the other um, Godzilla versus King Ghidorah, and I wrapped it up by mm. falling asleep while watching Godzilla versus Kong, uh, which is probably the best way to to enjoy that movie. It's just sporadically Aww. wake up during the action scenes, you know. Yeah, uh, that's, that's a good point. <laughs> yeah, I've been <laughs> when I've been awakened by like though. the roar. You're like, okay, this yeah. is a good spot. But yeah, I've like, literally no time to in, to take in anything else this past week. I haven't watched a a full movie, you know, like uninterrupted since uh, Monday night, I think, uh, and that was horror because it was just before Halloween. So that's all I got. Godzilla, just check out Godzilla stuff. There's a lot of it coming. <laughs> hey. He's always a good wreck. Absolutely. All right. Let us talk about Deathline. Um, like I said, 1972. This is two years before the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which always kind of blows Five me away Five years before Star it. Wars. Five years before Star Wars, absolutely. Um, and I think that this movie, lately it's been kind of getting a lot of reappraisal. It got some when it came out. Like in Britain, I think it actually was fairly well liked and made a decent amount of money but the reason that like here in the states it never really seemed to make an impact is that when it was first uh released in britain they had a deal with paramount paramount sold it out from under them and a distribution in america to this place called this uh company called american international pictures and what they did was that they recut the movie and retitled it raw meat and completely yeah. I, like misled audiences as with the posters and advertising. I don't think Deathline is a great title, but Raw Meat is a horrible title for this movie. Um, yeah, yeah, I don't know what they would have like cut or like recut it. it. I mean, the version that we're seeing, I saw it was like been reestablished since it was released in two thousand six. Mm-hmm. There were a couple like uh, cuts for gores that they had made throughout the the time. Right, uh, but it none of it seemed like too bad. But I guess for the time being, it was a little yeah too realistic. It's, or it's not yeah, it's not a long movie either. Maybe. And so I'm assuming that they literally just like trimmed out some of the atmospheric stuff in this movie. You know what I mean? Like, and purely just condensed it to like the plotty stuff. You know, they like, cut I, out all the British shit, like all the talk about <laughs> tea gone. I was going to say they probably that's like, that's like yeah. 50% of the movie. They probably entirely cut the bar scene, the pub scene with Donald Pleasance, oh, which is yeah. a, a travesty. But like, you know, I ag- agree. It's the best scene in the movie. It has no bearing on the plot whatsoever. No, but it, but it's absolutely vital, I think, for a couple of reasons. But we'll talk about that. Um so yeah, this directed by Gary Sherman, who is an American director, like I said. He was a commercial and industrial director. He moved to London because there were just opportunities there for like, you know, shooting commercials and things like that. He was working on a commercial for Procter and Grant on Gamble. Uh he jokes that the budget for that commercial was higher than the budget of Deathline. Uh there was a guy working on it, the the aforementioned um Carrie Jones, who wrote this. He was he's a very interesting figure by the way they talk about him. He reminds me of like uh you know, like I don't know, he's like a weird like sixties beatnik, is what it sounds like. He had like shoulder length okay. black hair, which hey, I, I don't mind that. Uh always wore dark sunglasses, was constantly smoking, but was just like a very like hip hip British guy. Him and Gary yeah. have this idea for this movie, right? And um they decide like, okay, let's write this and they were trying to get things made. They knew the horror was like, you know, always a good sell. So they took their script that they eventually put together 
and gave it to their producer on the commercial, a little guy named uh, Jonathan Demi, weirdly enough. Ooh. Yeah, so he was a producer on the commercial. He was like, hey, I love this script. I have some other producing friends we can hand this off to. Originally, he was going to produce the movie, but then he actually went to L.A. and met Roger Corman and started making movies of his own. So he was like, hey, look, I have to go become Jonathan Demi. I can't produce Deathline. Yeah, so, yeah makes sense. Yeah. Before we get any further, I've often wondered if I could pull off the sunglasses at all times. Like indoors at sure. night. Sure, absolutely. What, yeah. What's stopping you? I think a big factor in it is just the choice of frames. You know what I mean? You have to pick the right glasses right. for you. Well, um, where are they? You continue. Okay. I feel like something is, and hopefully these aren't going to be the ones you pull up right now, but I feel like a lot of guys for some reason, like, I don't know, think they can pull off like the little tiny like sunglasses that like Morpheus wears, you know? But it's like, no, not everybody can do that. It's a very specific face that that needs those. No, yeah, that's what I was going to say. No, it's not Morpheus glasses. Good. No. Uh, right. See, that, yes, you could pull that off. Absolute 100%. Yeah. All right. <laughs> so I, I expect you to look like this every single time we record from now on. <laughs> it, it works, man. It works. Um so, yes, uh, Jonathan Demi gives it to a bunch of other producers who decide, hey, we're going to produce this. One of those producers is this guy named Alan Ladd Jr. Um, do you know the actor Alan Ladd? It sounds familiar. Uh, he's most famous for playing the titular Shane in the movie Shane. Um, okay. Which is a, a great movie, classic Western. Um, Maybe it's Alan Ladd Jr. that I know because I the, the yeah, name he's a, sounds he's very a he's a pretty popular he's a pretty not popular he's a pretty like prolific producer. Um, okay, so he is producing the movie originally in the script. There was no American student, but Alan Ladd Jr. was like, "Hey, we have to sell this movie to Americans when we port it overseas. Let's give them an in with an American character." Um, and he's like, "Hey, and by the way." My brother, David Ladd, is an actor and living with me, so why doesn't he join oh. the cast? So that's how you get also David Ladd. Also bringing it together, yes. uh, Alan Ladd Jr. produced Gone Baby. No, that's that's different from Gone that's Girl. The, Never mind. Yes. Gone ba- that's the Ben Affleck movie? Yeah, yeah. Look, in a roundabout way, there's a connection. So anyway, that's how David... It was David... the sunglasses. I couldn't, yeah. <laughs> I couldn't read properly. <laughs> so that's how David Ladd gets um, involved. They wrote the part of Inspector Calhoun for Donald Pleasance. As soon as he agreed to do it, um, and kind of shockingly, he was not like a horror actor before this. You know, nowadays, he's pretty famous for Halloween okay. and, uh, you know, his yes. father, John Carpenter and Dario Argento later and a bunch of other trashy horror down the line. But this was like really the first time he did horror. He was just a really well-respected British actor. He had done things like The Great Escape before this, you know. Um, yeah. I don't remember if this was at the time he had done a remake of West, uh, All Quiet in the Western Front. That he's great into. But anyway, um, Ooh, I should see that. Yeah, no, this is definitely his gateway horror movie. Yes. Um, uh, so, and as soon as he came on board, they said that literally the entire rest of the cast fell in the place because everybody was like, "I want to work with Donald Pleasance." Um, so that includes Norman Rossington as the uh, his assistant. That includes um, Hugh Armstrong, the guy who plays the man, was just like that's a big selling point. And that includes Christopher Lee, who was like, "I will do anything, anything." For a scene with Donald Pleasance, which is why he's only in the scene for a single movie. He took a and pay it's so cut bizarre. for it. Yeah. 
We'll get to it. Yeah, he, yeah. he got paid at scale. I read that. Um, it's. I mean, he's great. He knocks it out of the park. It's a very interesting performance. They don't really do anything Mm-mm. throughout the movie. The police are uh, incompetent. May not be the right. No, right I, word. I would say Unaffective. they're actually they're actually pretty competent. It's just based on like you know it, they kind of do what they what they can. It's interesting. I think uh, I said yeah. unaffected. Like they they are there to provide us lore for the movie to explain yeah. why everything is happening. All of the things that actually happen are this American kid. At the end of the movie, they like they write in right after they've done everything. Yes, exactly. Um, they they're they're and they're, yeah, their role in it is very interesting. We'll talk about that. Um, just to, to give a hint at where I'm going with this movie, this movie is very much about the stratification of society, and the police play a very interesting role in all that. So, um, yeah, we'll talk about that. Uh, yes. So, just a little bit more history stuff. Um, this, you know, they they shot this movie in like three weeks or something like that. Everybody talked about how fucking wonderful Donald Pleasance was. And how amazing he was on set. Just he was a jokester. He was kind between takes. When he wasn't shooting, he was going to get people tea. He would insist that like mm. there was a, a time later where he's on the phone with uh, Doctor Bacon, and they were they sh- when they shot Donald's scene. Doctor Bacon was on set doing the other side of the conversation. You know, just because like I think he had to be on set to shoot something else. When they were shooting Doctor Bacon's side of it. Donald didn't need to be there because he was in a different location and he wasn't shooting that day. Pleasance insisted on coming to set on his day off. They're like, don't, he's like, you do not have to pay me. I am just going to be there so I can give the other actor the courtesy of feeding him the lines live with me so he can play it properly. Like, that's how wow. in- invested he was on getting this all right. He, you know, he definitely seems, uh, you know, high artist. Yeah. Like again, it's a it's a it's a wonderful performance. Is this uh has he become like a full raging alcoholic at that this point? Like is he They didn't talk about shots of like, brandy between takes or everything. They didn't talk cause... about him drinking alcohol on set, but it does He's it does playing sound some like some of those drunk yeah. scenes pretty well. In the commentary I listened to, they were talking about basically everybody else being out at pubs whenever they could. Okay. Um but they didn't mention like they didn't mention Pleasance uh, boozing it up on set or anything. I guess it's the question of like, do I drink because I'm in Halloween Four, or <laughs> am I drinking, or am I in Halloween Four to continue drinking? Well, okay. So based on the story of Halloween, like I mean, I think it was like Jimmy Lee Curtis talks about him like taking slugs of a uh, wine and sh- red wine and stuff between sure, takes. Right. But like again, everybody so loved working seven with him, years. Though. Yeah. We've had yeah, some something happened. Yeah, we talked about him with Prince of Darkness, but like, you know, at that point that's deep in him boozing it up whenever he can. I mean, there's they still definitely times where yeah. he's slurring the word like as they they still loved him the though. Smallest yeah. So, uh, yeah, let's get into the plot, because otherwise, again, we're going to be here all day if I don't start um, talking about stuff. Right off, before before the plot even starts kicking in, we get a funky-ass beat. Yeah, I man. love the 70s for this reason. The music was phenomenal. Um, this is the highlight of it, and then I don't think there's any other real 
good score or anything else. I really, I'm going to argue a little bit about because I think that there's one moment later where they really make it effective. There's there's one pretty bad moment of music in this. I would say, yeah. I think the credits are not great, but like, okay. this opening yeah. is nice. It's fantastic. And it's all just like a guy perving out. Yes, and I love okay. It. I just I love the stylization of these credits in general. So it's yeah. like, yeah, we we see um, it starts very out of focus, and then it w- it will focus in on something and then go out of focus again when it cuts to another something else, which I think is a, a really nice, like interesting strategy for for doing this. Almost, feels like something that, that was popular in the sixties, like a little a bit, yeah, movie, like yeah. A Austin Powers parody. That's, so I was going to say like what it, what they're parodying. The interesting part about it is that like it's looking at a lot of neon signs because it's in sort of like a uh, like a red light district. This is in um, in Soho, I believe, or is it no? Uh, which part of Britain was this in? They say they mentioned in the commentary. <laughs> um. Anyway, yeah, so it's like in, in a you know in a part of uh, Britain, Soho, yes, where it's it's known for like it's you know being prostitute central, yes, seediness, right. And so it's shooting a lot of neon signs. It'll go out of focus on the neon, and it creates a really cool, colorful title card for the credits when they come up. Like it's a really yeah. Again, it, I think it's just a very creative like technique you know and so each time it comes in focus we see this man in a hat doing you know perving out somewhere else uh eventually he goes down into the tube uh where he encounters a woman he believes to be a prostitute he basically propositions her you know whispers in her ear the first spoken dialogue we do here is the train saying mind the doors that is just something to keep in mm. mind that's the first line of dialogue um eventually though the woman says like you know it's like hey you know fuck off she knees him in the balls for being a perv she runs away we hear a really strange thudding noise as he's kind of recuperating and the camera it's sort of it's a really nice like weird reveal that it's a pov shot because the camera like lurches forward towards him you know and he like looks at the camera and like is clearly like seeing something come at him uh we cut away to the inside of a train where we kind of just see everyday working class people getting on a lot of great fashion sense for them um, and we meet Alex and Patricia, our young couple. Uh, they get off the train, discover Manfred, who is this guy, we'll learn that his name is Manfred. He's laying unconscious on the stairs. Uh, Patricia's very worried about him. Immediately, Alex is just like, hey, he's a drunk, fuck him. And he has the extremely... In New York, you walk over these guys. Yes, the extremely telling line, 100%. In New York, you walk over these guys. Uh, he's like, I don't want to get involved. It's none of our business. She's worried he might be diabetic, so they check his wallet to see if he's got a card. They learn what his name is. Um, eventually, now she... OBE is a like uh, a, not a regal title. But no, it's yeah, like kinda. It's, it means he's knighted, officer of the Order of the British Empire. Yeah, it means he's knighted. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, okay. okay. Later, later in life, Donald Pleasance will become an OBE for the dramatic arts. Yeah, it's it's funny that like the card they pull out is basically like. Uh, allows you entrance and one free drink into any of the hundred clubs. <laughs> yeah. on the back of, like that's what they're using knighthood for now. Yeah, it allows you to be uh, yeah, go get go get pissed at your local pub. Yeah, exactly for free. Yeah, um, you just yeah, you just keep hitting up all these different bars. You never have yeah. to pay for a drink. You get one drink, you go to the next place. Um, I'm not gonna talk about it too much just because I I want to make our own podcast distinct about this. But I listened to another podcast a few months ago before I knew we we're gonna do this. Um, called Vanguard of Horror. 
which is a really good podcast. But I think uh, both hosts, one host is British, but I think both have have spent a lot of time in the UK. And they talk about this movie from like a like a leftist sort of like, you know, uh, capitalist perspective. And they gave a lot of really okay. interesting context on a lot of the Britishness of this movie. OBEs are very heavily criticized by the left in Britain because it's like it is a class that essentially is useless and all they really do is like it makes you a dumb celebrity rich dickhead for you know it's just privilege it it's, literally is just establishing privilege yeah exactly um and a lot of them are kind of known to be like you know pompous shitheads so like that that's exactly what they're getting at with the OBE in in this movie that's the type of guy he is too you know um so yeah, they go and eventually Patricia is like, okay, we have to find and somebody to help. They go to a Bobby who comes down and they're they're gone. The guy's gone. He's disappeared. So they think, okay, maybe he just got up and left, right? He recovered and is everything's fine. But it's also um, funny, like there's just so many great characters. Yeah. In this movie, like we're we're gonna completely skip over them. But the elevator operator is like hilariously british Mm -hmm. and i love it but like again it's one of these things it has no semblance on the plot but like he has a little back and forth with him yeah it's so yeah and in in the commentary i watched a lot of great things here absolutely in the um in the commentary i watched like gary sherman was just constantly any little bit player pops up he's like oh yeah this actor was like an extremely well-known british tv actor sure right and, like, um, he also said, too, like, even the guy playing James Manfred, um, James Cossens, in Britain, that guy was also a pretty big deal. And he said that more than anybody else, he was the one that was, like, getting recognized on the street as they were shooting. And, like, oh. you know, when they went out drinking and stuff, that guy was, like, getting all this attention, you know. Same with Norman Rossington, who plays the the second command. Th- they were all just, like... You know, they were talking about how, like, Britain, at that time especially, the acting community really was, like, small and insular. Everybody knew each other. Everybody was friends. Well, sure. You go out and you see them constantly just about town, you know? So, like, yeah, um, you're totally right. I think just, like, like... actors in New York yeah. being on Law & Order, it's just a small island. And, like, like... basically... Exactly. Yeah, basically everybody, too, including um, Hugh Armstrong, who plays the man, everybody was, like, a Royal Shakespeare Company actor, you know? Like, they've all done, like, Macbeth. Like, Makes sense. Yeah. Um, so the next, uh, later that night, Patricia wakes up. She's like, I'm still thinking, I can't think- stop thinking about him. What can we do? Right. And um, I think she just replies, worry, essentially, which again strikes me as something about like class. Like, what do you, so there's people in distress and, oh, yeah, we're going to worry about it. We're not actually going to fix it, yeah. sort of a thing. Yeah. Um, uh, I know what she could do go get a haircut. And her hair it is pretty terrible in this. Not yeah. look great. She has some interesting fashion. Like I like the coat, mm-hmm. uh, but the bright yellow boots. No, they gotta go. <laughs> so the next day, we meet Inspector Calhoun coming into his office, and Rogers uh, gives him the lowdown on the day. We start the very fun running bit of him just going Marshall, calling his Marshall tea bag. Yeah, tea. Yeah. Uh, uh, I do love that they've switched to tea bags, and so, his line is like, "Ah, and I've been blaming the Indians." Oh, I've been blaming the Indians. He is so good at this. He is putting on a sort of like, um, uh, like a lower class accent, what's typically considered like a lower class mm. accent. You know, um, 
like a more working class accent, I would I should say. Uh, so yes, he is horrified to learn that the tea has been coming from tea bags. I love that he like keeps picking them out with a with a dart. Yes. Oh yeah. And just like tossing them back. Right. Exactly. He's got a dartboard on his door, and they point out in the commentary. I never would have noticed this, but but the dartboard itself is completely empty of darts. All the darts are stuck around it. So he's. I like, noticed this later. Yeah. I did notice this later because you see him like he's throwing them, and then yes. like the like couple scenes he opens the door, and none of them are on. <laughs> it's there. it's so funny. Uh, he is doing so much amazing business in this. In the commentary, yeah. they talked about how he was just like improvising up a storm a lot of times. A lot of the dialogue is in there too, but like in terms of his actions, like so the dart thing is all him, right? All the business he's doing with his glasses when he's like reading papers and stuff later. Him walking around yeah. the desk at one point was causing a bunch of issues because like he kept like he wasn't supposed to walk around the desk. But he just found it be interesting to do, so they completely reworked all of the uh, yeah all the angles to there's, like suit that. There's a lot of uh, really great camera work, and we'll get into it a lot more later. Amazing when we're camera work to another yeah. character, but like, and that's that's I think what I have problem with the Christopher Lee scene is that like you around it you have all this amazing stuff done, yeah, and then that yeah. one is like almost completely static. At a point. They do some cool things with that, too, but we'll talk about that in a second. Um, so, essentially, he's doing all this business as Rogers is trying to, like, give him the rundown of the day. He mentions a disappearance at Russell Square Station. This triggers a memory, though, of, hey, we had a disappearance there a few months ago, and another one before and that a few before months before. That. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So, he makes a call, um, essentially being like, okay, we're missing James Manfred OBE. Let me call to see if he's in. Right. So I love that he gives a call, be like, hey, get me James Manfred. They call maybe 10 seconds later and he goes, it took them long enough, didn't it? Um, yeah. <laughs> right. So he puts on this really posh accent and he's like, oh, James Manfred, OBE. Right. He learns that he missed a meeting, a missed the morning meeting with the minister. Naughty. Naughty. Yeah. So good. Oh my God. He is just killing it. He's still got like brownish hair at this point. It's not gone white yet, <laughs> you know? Like he looks uh, he's good. Basically, I, you you have to infer that the person on the other end is asking who's calling, and he just says, uh, "Tell him Princess Anne," and hangs up yes. the phone immediately. <laughs> uh, so good. We just get the a sense immediately where he kind of lands. So especially when he's talking to Alex in just a moment, because they bring Alex into down to the station to talk, to him, uh, ask him some questions. So again, the police's place in this. You're totally right of their ineffectualism. He sees himself as above the common person, right? Because, like, he does not fucking respect Alex's time at all, you know? Does not, right. like, he does. He just does not give a shit. Well, he sees them, they're students. He yes. sees them as hippies. Right. Um, and he does have the resentment, because, he, like, he says, O.B. bloody E. Yes. Like, it's, so, uh, you know, he's perfectly, the title yeah. itself, he is... Kind of, like, angry about, like, I have to deal with this. So, that I mean, talking about the police as a system in general, he's in this between spot where he is meant to uphold the law, right, of, like, the upper echelons of British government, whatever they deem is proper and moral, whatever. He's supposed to be, like, an enforcer of that, correct? But he's also supposed to serve the public trust. He's supposed to be on the side of people like Alex and Patricia, and, you know, ostensibly the man, too. But he is stuck in this weird place where, like, all you can really do is be this outside force 
that maybe helps, maybe doesn't, you know? It's inter- with capitalism, they're just protecting capital. That's, yeah. all, that's all they do. Totally. That's really what it comes down to. Absolutely. Um, they're servants. They have a pretty interesting conversation about, um, like, uh, you know, Alex is an economic student. He says his only complaint is a 10 mile limit on fishing, right? No, think- what, he, what, what Pleasant says. Uh, do you think we shall profit from the common market? Oh, yes. And his yeah. response is, I have a problem with the 10-mile fishing. Which then, later on, Pleasant brings back with, like, I think it should be 8-mile. Yes. And I was just like, I have no idea what you're talking about. Yeah. Okay, so apparently this, this again, I'm not just going to be copying everything from Vanguard of Horror. But they talk about, they give context of those lines. So apparently that 8-mile, 10-mile limit thing has to do with, like, a bunch of disputes that are happening with, I think, Norway or Denmark about okay. like which waters were considered like good for British to ship to, to fish right so it's, it's essentially the British it's like a form of British imperialism of like hey these waters are actually ours and if you're a you know sure a Scandinavian fisher taking from it you're stealing from the British right and it caused a big hubbub they talked about how eventually that that the, those kinds of problems led to something like brexit because it is just a lot of about like Britain not wanting to coexist with the rest of Europe and being like, hey, somehow right. we're above these things and can take what we yeah. want. So it is yeah. a pretty interesting conversation when you boil it down like that. Um, Calhoun looks amazing. He's got his big like thick glasses whenever he's reading like yeah, things. I think he like will put them on his head when he's like talking to people. And it is such a great again. He's doing so much business here. In the commentary, Gary Sherman told a really great story about. Um, Calhoun shooting in this office so he's got like a big fireplace behind him and it's a very cramped set so he talks about any time that like he would have to turn his chair around and stand up Donald Pleasance would bang his head against the fireplace and then was doing it intentionally like intentionally at one huh. point to pretend to be hurt right and the first few times it happened Gary Sherman would panic and be like, Donald, are you okay? Right? Because he said he would imagine, like, with his bald head, he's gotten no protection. And each time, Pleasance would be like, yes, I'm fine. I'm an actor. Right? Because he's faking it. He's faking hitting his head. He was like, one time, you know, eventually he's like, okay, fine. This guy's a fucking jokester. I'm not taking it seriously. Right? So he would keep doing it, and Gary would start ignoring him. And then one time, he got up, and there was a huge impact noise when he hit his head against the fireplace. And Gary was like, okay, whatever, Donald. He, Donald turns around, has blood running through his fingers, right? And so Gary does the thing of like, Donald, holy shit, are you okay? Donald takes away a blood pack and was like, of course, <laughs> I'm an actor. So, God, I love him so much. Everything I learn about fucking Donald Pleasance, I just fall more in love. Uh, <laughs> so, yes, anyway. You did say at one at very young, he was your favorite actor. I I'm coming around to it. Yes, I'm coming around to that just still being true, especially based on this movie. Um, So, yes. Okay. Anyway, what we essentially gleam is that, like, he kind of accuses Alex of maybe trying to steal from Manfred when he was down. Right. He's kind of questioning the motives of Alex. He's mistrustful because of his status as a college student and an American. Um, He tells him to leave, though. He says there might be a protest march for you to join. Right. And then as he's closing the door, get a haircut. Um, Get a haircut. And the way that like he smiles after he says <laughs> oh, that yeah. is great. Yes. But um, he is still interested in this. He starts doing research on the station. This is where we get like this like historian coming in 
this another great side character and the great like british yeah. character actor yeah very character like a, a character mm-hmm. uh runs through like all of the lore that yeah. we need it's just in, in uh, one in one you brief know what's going to be happening exactly yeah. it's very efficient in the 1800s the city employed a bunch of smaller companies to dig out new tunnels as the city was expanding um these private companies employed and this is me now going into some history that I both read into and was talked about by Gary Sherman in the commentary. Uh, they employed a lot of Irish immigrants, a lot of um, uh, Scottish immigrants, and they were mainly comprised of like families. Men, women, and children were sent down into the tunnels to dig them out. They were so rushed yeah. for time because these companies were competing for contracts from the uh, from the government. So essentially, it's like, hey, we're all racing to get this done. The government is is paying a lot of them. And it's like, if you want more jobs doing this, you have to get these done fast. What that results in is that a lot of shoddy work, because you have literal children doing the work of, like, you know, doing this construction work. Um, and there were several They're only cave- good for sewing. Those yes. tiny fingers. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, this resulted in a lot of actual cave-ins that left people trapped and or just flat out killed. And it is essentially, it's rumored that they just left a lot of them, didn't bother to dig them out because hmm. one, who cares? They're low class immigrants, yeah. and two, we don't have time for this. We have to move on to something else and build more tunnels. So, yeah, one hundred. You know, it's funny. It very similar in an aspect to Green Inferno, another mm-hmm. pick of yours this month of competing capitalism. Yeah, uh, you know, butting heads and the. Hmm. The, uh, collateral damage of the the normal the small person and somehow it coming forgotten yeah it's somehow all coming back to man eating man eating men yeah yes it's yeah. uh it's pretty fascinating so anyway this guy theorizes that um the the Russell Square station there was a collapse it left eight men and four women trapped he theorizes that there there's air pockets and plenty of water so they could have survived if they just ate their dead as they died off um. So, yes, and now we immediately cut to an abandoned tube station where mm-hmm. we have some dripping water and we have a close-up of a fucking disembodied hand, just a severed hand sitting on a, a table. We then begin great. a one-take the- that lasts seven minutes and 18 seconds. Yeah. It is absolutely beautiful. Um, I literally have a play-by-play written down, but I'll just say, like, it starts with a 360 of this room. We do a complete 360, mm-hmm. starting from that hand. As it's doing the 360, we get a wider scope of what the room is like. We see James Manfred's There's body. a couple, like, hidden cuts, There's, I believe. There's but at least seemed, one, yeah. Yeah, there, it, seem, it seems all, like, yeah, in, in the long take. Right. Uh, pretty glorious, yeah. You get it's the James Manfred... Cool. So actually, we learn he's still still alive because we hear his heartbeat, too, which is a nice thing. He's, like, barely alive. Um, We uh, see another body hanging from a hook. We see other just desecrated corpses, and the gore work is really good. Yeah, it's Um, really cool. Yeah, uh, really amazing makeup in this, as we'll talk about in just a second. Uh, We start moving backwards, and we have, again, this is the other music part I like. That funky 70s music in the beginning is played again but on like a different instruments in this in a very quiet way. Hmm. Like you hear the little okay. motif of it um, when, when you see Manfred's body. So it's like Manfred's little like theme, you know, it's kind of fun. His, his horny theme. Yes, exactly. So the camera, after it goes, uh, does 360, it then backs out of a door, like through a little window. 
And um, Gary said the way they did this essentially is the door is like cut. And it's really weird way he explained it, but the door is cut in a certain way where they could close the door around the camera. And so it looks like the camera is going through the door. But in reality, it's the door moving past the camera, which is really cool. Um, Okay. It's hard. Yeah. Explaining it, it doesn't make a lot. I'd have to see them do it in order to really understand it. But it's, it's, yeah. So anyway, we come out in this other room. And this is where we meet the man and the woman. We only see the man from the back, but he is comforting a extremely gross looking sickly woman dying on a bed. Their teeth Sickly, look horrible. The hair is streaky, falling woman. out. Pregnant, yes. They're just whimpering at each other. Immediately, they are so pathetic and so sad to look at. Like the make again, the makeup is like, oh god, their skin, the texture of their skin looks so clammy and sweaty and gross. Um the camera moves out of that room. That's where we have a hidden cut. We then start moving down an extremely long tunnel. Um, Gary Sherman talked about the history of this place a little bit. Uh, it was a real abandoned, like, go station, they called it. Um, but apparently it was, it was like, at one point a, you know, a shelter during World War II when the Nazis were bombing London. Uh, and eventually just became a storeroom for the Metro Company and was then kind of abandoned. They said there were homeless living in there when they first came in to shoot. And it smelled like absolute shit. <laughs> um, well, yeah, makes sense. Yeah. Uh, we go down this long, long hallway. All we hear is just the sound of dripping, echoing throughout the the thing. It is so good at establishing the brutal loneliness of the people living down here. Right there, the how how far they are from the rest of society. You know, where nobody's going to be thinking about them. No one knows they exist. No human comforts. No societal, uh, you know, um, what do you call it? Conveniences at all. Just brutal of home. loneliness yeah. and darkness. Yeah. Uh, we start hearing an auditory flashback as we see the rubble with a bunch of skeletons in it. We hear the, the cave-in as it happened. Um, and as it zooms in, goes back to a close-up on the bones in the rubble. So we start super close on a disembodied hand and then end on a close-up of a skeletal hand in the rubble, which is really, some really nice parallelism. This This, this shit is amazing. This is like fucking top tier camera work, you know, incredible filmmaking on display here. I, I really love this moment so much. Um, I can't praise it enough. Seven minutes, 18 seconds. That's how long it lasts. It, very impressive. Yeah. yeah. I'm sure you were able to, uh, you know, complete three times during that. Uh, totally, man. Uh, yeah. Just, yeah. Oh, yeah. Once when you One saw. One after another. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Oh, they also talk about how, like, you know, in order to pull it off, there's just, like, a ton of crew members off to the side of every shot, right? Which is fun. But they said that, like, uh, there's a rat trainer who's, like, coaching the rat you see crawling along the hand at that point. I just, like, I don't I loved picturing this guy off screen, like, dangling cheese or something to get it it's, to, like, do what it they, wants. They pulled it off. Yeah. Patricia boards a train. Oh, yeah. So they have a fight. Well, she Alex leaves. Alex and Patricia. Yeah. Yeah. She's like, I can't be with somebody who who doesn't care, right? Who's who's not compassionate, or whatever. But then she's awaiting alone at the tube platform. Getting back to this idea of loneliness, I was just talking about. She can't stand to be alone for like twenty minutes. She goes back yeah. to Alex, right? Um, compared that to the loneliness of the man and the woman down in the tunnel, where like you know, loneliness is just a theme of this. I'm I'm going to be pointing out. 
Uh, we then as Alex is lonely, he's playing with his like desktop like yes. ball. Yeah, exactly. Thing. Like that's that's his obsession between mm-hmm. them. We go back to the man. We see his face for the first time. Again, looks horrible. He's always got spittle coming out of his mouth, yeah. and he just can't communicate. All he can do is grunt, right, and like gesture. It is so. Now, why is this? It do- it seems like he should at least be able to have some semblance of a intelligent speaking. Like, I think they've well, only been down there since 1892, only. so it's like it's almost 100, 90 well, eight, years. It's ninety years, eighty years, eighty years. Um, how many generations? Maybe two or three. Wouldn't they like be able to teach someone like how to speak? I um, I think it's a combination. There's lead poisoning, the plague as I, well. Like, so I think it's a combination of yeah, a combination of various diseases and incests is my guess. Right. I don't know. There were, it said there were four women at least trapped down there. But so if you're hopefully... eating, the de- if you're eating the dead, who's to say that that you know? It's, you start with eight men and four women. Those four, those eight men could have killed each other over the women. You know, yeah, suicides. Yeah. Who knows? We don't know. Uh, I think point. I like that sort of mystery about it of like you know just this is how it how it goes. I'm going to establish this right it is, now. It's tragic, right? I'm establishing this right now. So this this to me not only is this a cannibal story, this is a Frankenstein story. It's checking out so checking off so many boxes for me. So we talk about how you know it was uh, they were building tunnels right in order to like uh, uh, when this cave in happened. What is going on here? This is man advancing society right striving for like more convenient like things through technology so kind of like frankenstein exploring the depths of like you know what is possible with science this is us being like hey we're building the city out we're st- we're putting together this like big vast network so that like all these people can conveniently sure. move from one place to another right actions to your consequences exactly yes. This movie yeah. is a lot about, yeah, it's about the consequences of minor conveniences. Hey, we have horse and buggies. We have roads, but we want to go even faster. We want to cut down these commutes. We need you to commute faster so you can get to your factory job to work even harder. You know what I mean? To make us more money, essentially. Like, um, they talk about on that Vanguard of Horror podcast, and I swear it's the last time I'll bring them up, but like how a lot of people who are commuting on the tube every day, they're all working class. You're living in one mm-hmm. suburb, you're commuting to some big factory, some office, whatever. It's all working class stuff. That's what the tube is for. It's not for the OBEs. And they even talk about in this movie they bring how that it, up. they say yeah. it's even weird that he's down there. It's, doesn't he have a private car? Doesn't he have a chauffeur? You know? Well, so, it's horny. Right. Where you got to go for the prostitute. Exactly. And this guy is the Frankenstein monster result of that. That's why, that's how you get them. And that means that the woman is his bride, too, you know. Uh, But this is why you have these things. It's like they are this unfortunate, hideous creation that comes as a result of scientific and societal advancement. So that's why I think this is a Frankenstein story. Um, Get ready, guys. I have more of these I'm going to try to race through. Oh, you (laughs) you got to race so anyway, so okay. we didn't even talk about Manfred getting his throat slit. To, yes, as the woman's uh, dying, nourish yeah. the wife, who it mm-hmm. doesn't work, unfortunately. Uh, this was some of dying. the. This was some. Of the, that was some of the gore that was cut. I think in the American one for raw meat. Um, yes, but there's horrible gurgling noises, and it's really nasty when you like. It's a close up of like his face, and you just really see like the kind of like pus, like and mm-hmm. gross shit on his skin. Yeah. 
Um, I, I know you want to talk about Donald Pleasance going to check out Manfred's that's where like, we're That's where we're getting to, yes. So they go to his home. Right. This was this was shot in one of the homes of uh, one of the producers, right? They just needed a location that looked fancy. This producer's like, Anything okay, shoot it in my... Nicking? Yeah, shooting in my uh, living room. Apparently, this house, too, that they're shooting at is two doors down from where Mick Jagger lived at the time. Um, That's fun. Yes. So they, they're, they're, in, they're going around... They're breaking open his desk to like rifle through things. Uh, they're Plus drinking his booze. Very, yeah. very large brandy. Mm-hmm. They discover a hidden room the behind his bookcase. Oh god, so many good. Li- Literally every line he says to me is so yeah. fucking funny. Uh, they find a hidden room behind his bookcase with a video feed into the bedroom, and they're like, "Oh, home movies, huh?" Um, so this guy is an ultra perv. Christopher Lee just appears in the room. You don't hear him enter. You don't see him walk in. We just hear his voice and then cut to him standing in the middle of the room with an umbrella, a bowler hat, and a fucking mustache. He looks incredible. He looks Pointing so good. with the umbrella is good. Like, yeah, he's great. Like, it's yeah. it's sad that we only get the one scene. And again, we've done so much great camera work at this point to where now it's completely static, stationary. We have medium shots and then it keeps zooming in on christopher lee so that okay, while yeah. staying medium shots with pleasance to give the context to why this happens uh christopher lee is six six or six seven um and donald pleasance is either five three or five four so sure based <laughs> on your, i was just gonna five, be six so to hear that's even shorter than that's that, that's wow. what G- gary Sherman said five four yeah um i think is what he said in the commentary but essentially he was saying like the first thing Donald Pleasance or Christopher Lee said was, I'm not working on my knees, right? <laughs> um, Donald Pleasance then came back with, I am not working on a box. So they just were not willing to compromise in terms of like, hey, we've, we want a two shot of the two of you guys together. It's just going to be a lot of work. We don't have that kind of time, right? So what he came up with was... So easy to solve. You have oh, Christopher Lee sit down. And which he does at the end of the shot, yes. So, yeah, at the end yeah. of the scene. So, yeah, I know, I know. But essentially what Sherman came up with, which I think is pretty interesting in its own right, but I would, I agree it's a bit of a disappointment for, like, the one movie that Pleasance or Lee are in together that, like, it's this short and shot like this. I get it. But, yeah, every time you cut to Lee, the camera is closer on his face. Every time you cut to Pleasance and Rossington, the camera is further away from them. And it is establishing a dominance that Lee has over Pleasance in this moment. Yes. But their back and like forth is fucking great. Yeah. Ruling ru- who rules the scene, yes. yes. Like I I was interpreting that and I got it. I just was like you, you no, done I so understand. much more you have the, yeah. stuff. And you have these it's, two it's legends. Such a disappointment. Yeah. I get it. Yeah. Absolutely. Um Calhoun is basically told, Hey, do not investigate Manfred. The case is closed. He never disappeared. Calhoun insists that it is his business. Right? There's a great moment where um, fucking Calhoun whispers, fuck you. Like, just very quietly. Oh, that was one of my favorite. He doesn't yeah. even, like, say anything. He just mouths it. Um, mm-hmm. I And then Christopher Lee is like, uh, you know, why don't you go back to planting pot on people? Why don't you go back to planting pot on people? And mind, you don't become a missing person yourself. Uh, love it. So good. So they, he decides that they're going to leave. Rossington goes, MI5? No, Sergeant. He's a traffic warden. Which is like, yeah, it's good. Uh, that's yeah. really great. Um, so, like I said, Lee basically did the movie for a reduced rate. The uh, assistant director, his name is Lewis, uh, Lewis O'Farrell, I think. He was also on the commentary. He said that 
Um, he only worked with Lee for maybe like a few hours this one day. But like five years later, he got David Bowie tickets, which is how he says it because he's British. He takes a seat at the concert. Next to him is Christopher Lee at this David Bowie concert. Christopher Lee immediately goes, hello, Lewis, how are you? He's like, he had an amazing wow. memory. He was super nice. And he's like, we spent the next few hours dancing and rocking out to David Bowie together. Uh, I love the image of Christopher Lee dancing to David Bowie songs, you know? Just like, 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 you know, uh, modern love. Dun, dun, dun. Christopher Lee, like, swinging his arms around. Oh, God. <laughs> um, we, yeah, so this is where, yeah, Pat, Patricia immediately comes back to Alex after that. We see them reuniting. It's a very quiet moment. There's no dialogue. Basically, she just comes in and they hug. And it is very yeah. tender. And then you contrast that immediately with a cut to the man weeping and wailing over the woman's dead body. I Again, the juxtaposition between these two things is so great. It, like, it just cannot be more poignant and sad. Like, he's crying out in gibberish. He has no other way to express himself. There's nobody there to comfort him, to acknowledge his grief at all. He slowly covers like up a blanket. Like yes. Just not, not being able to control any yeah. emotion, just getting it out there. And the, he goes and takes it out on the wrong people. And he's taking it out on just on an environment. He just walks into an empty platform and starts beating shit up with like a stick, you know? Um I I love Donald Pleasant in this movie. Hugh Armstrong is also fucking incredible. Like, he's really good. He's in this role, truly yes. awesome. I did watch an interview with him where he talked about how, like, you know, he's like, it was a very weird challenge, this movie, because you have literally one line that you're repeating over and over, right? And you're only able to say it at the end of the movie. So before that, you have to entirely express yourself through actions and movement, right, and body language. And you're also under a lot of makeup. You know, so he just saw it as a very unique challenge, but he was a Shakespearean actor, like I said. Um, and he said that Gary Sherman's direction purely was just giving him the situation of like, okay, now you're going to learn that you're, that the woman has died and you're going to get mad. And mm. everything that he does is improvised. He just like did it. Gary Sherman would watch what he did. They would plan the blocking out based on that and then shoot it. So this is a performance all like all him essentially. Um, like the entire character of the man is essentially like being written as he's doing it, which is really fucking awesome. Um, so yes, uh, Gary Sherman said that this is his favorite scene in the movie, him just like uselessly yelling and raging in his own environment. I also just love that. Like he discovers she's dead and he like, you know, seems to accept it. He puts the blanket on her, but then he like goes back into denial, starts like shaking her body, like gibbering mm. more. Like he can't accept it. You know, it's God, it's so good. Um, he gets so mad, though, he just goes out into the world, goes, you know, exits the tunnel. Three service workers are walking onto the platform, kind of just chatting, you know, about sports, More like right? just, like, character, yeah, like, their about character football. building, and it's yeah. great. Um, their deaths are spectacular. We have yes. to go through it too fast to, like, the, the, the what they deserve, the, the uh, shovel through the head. The lights fantastic. go out, yeah. The entire thing is lit by flashlights, which is a really fun, like, scary choice. Uh, I really like that. Just like, you know, complete darkness, and then the, the flashlight moves over to the guy with the shovel in his head, which looks really good. And strikes me as very uh, gory for 72. Yeah. Guy impaled on a broom. Oh, Another fantastic great. Thing. Yes. Also, they bring this up later, that it's he's very strong to be able to do this when he's, like, vitamin deficient. Yeah. Incestual. 
Uh, mm-hmm. It's got the plague, <laughs> you know. Uh, I, you know, freakishly strong. Yes, exactly. Is that the incest thing? Maybe. Like, I mean, that's what. That's that's the that's the yeah exactly. That's the uh, trade off there. Yeah, uh, but I also love that like he's he is this movie monster, but he's still patheticness in his monstrousness. Like well, he attacks course. them and almost like immediately, you said Frankenstein. Yeah, but right. almost immediately they throw him to the ground and beat him in the head with the broom. He's got open yeah. wounds already, and like you see the broom hit the open wound, which is really painful to watch. Um, and this, like you know, this hobbles him for the rest of the movie, like that head wound. Um, so, but eventually, yeah, he slams a third. He kills the other two guys, slams a third against the wall, drags him away. Calhoun gets a call in the middle of the night. We see that he's sleeping alone in a bed, and he just has a pot of tea ready for him on yeah, his nightstand. Drinking, which is a drinking thing. the cold tea, pretty great. But again, talking about loneliness, we see he's got yeah. nobody at home, right? And there's a line later I'll of get course. to that is very telling. Uh, yes, he does. Uh, yes. I like when he comes in and sees the body, you know. <laughs> uh, uh, I like to have a peek, helps to settle the cornflakes. <laughs> great line, yes. I really love this mortician scene. They shot this in a real mortician's office, and there's a really interesting guy. It's a he's featured like in the foreground, but it's the the black guy, the black mortician. But he's got a great okay, right. like big gray beard. That guy yeah. was just a real mortician at the office that they just decided to put in the scene, it's which is got a great look. And again, yeah. The- the way that they start the scene was like cleaning blood on yeah. one of the trays, and then they pan up to to Pleasance, and then they pan over. Like it's really right. good, you know, filmmaking. Yeah. So basically, we just learned that like, hey, these guys got incredible strength. We learned that we what we want to find the la- the missing person because you know, and there's a fourth. Yeah. Yes, and with there's a the fourth anemic blood. He's anemic as well. We forgot right. about that. <laughs> yeah, uh, of all the things, uh, we, Patricia wants a book about poltergeists. Yes, which. Uh, Sherman had a laugh at that because he goes on later to direct Poltergeist 3. Yeah. Ah, uh, um, okay. Yeah. Uh, there's also another funny bit I like with the book clerk asking Patricia if yeah. her and Alex are okay because he wants to fuck her. Like of he's course. hoping that yes. there's some strife there. Yeah. Um, she is gorgeous besides that haircut. Yeah, she had. Um, but her and, her and David Ladd are both like you know, pretty new actors at this point. Her mom was an actress. I was, I was learning. I didn't, it wasn't any way okay. recognized, but yeah, they Nepotism. both didn't, they both didn't really have much acting beyond this movie. Um, you can tell. So this is what we're going to get to. Yeah. I think they're fine. I think their role in the story really works so much thematically that I'm able to kind of like, yeah, I, I can get past some of their weaker moments. I think just, again, juxtaposing them between, uh, between them and like the man and the woman to me works so well sure that i'm so, totally you're okay saying with it, even yeah. on set they were like oh she's ter- she's a terrible actress and not on know. set it was during the commentary they were kind of like okay. laughing about it yeah uh, um they were kind of saying right. like they're talking about david ladd and we're like oh he only really worked a little bit more as an actor but he became a producer and gary sherman's like a ah, much better job for him i think <laughs> like you know so they were kind of like yeah yeah, yeah. Well, they're not um, even meant to be together. He asked if you want to go see the French Connection, and she says no. No, too violent. Yeah, which is a fun meta thing in this movie where you got blood and cannibalism and murders. You know, I like that. Um, but it is also like uh, <laughs> I don't know, just something about the the protectedness of her and her world. You know, like I, I don't know. So, uh, I can't quite know what I'm what I'm getting at there. There's something to it. Anyway. Uh, 
yeah, they call Alex in again because they just feel like they're circling in on something, right? Um, the man, uh, we see, oh yeah, the man is crying alone when he notices the watch on the station worker that he kidnapped and ate. Uh, he takes it and he does a little funeral rite for the woman and he puts it on her we chest. We see that everybody else Oh god, has this like, is, yeah, god, it's so good. There's like a whole graveyard of people and they all have like a little thing yeah. on top of them. And yeah. it ranges from like, like... Jewelry. Right, and it starts with like bodies that still have some flesh on them but are decomposing, right? And then it just keeps panning over and showing more and more and like you get to just, older yeah, skele- like skeletal remains. Yeah. yeah, god, it's so sad. Um... We, uh, Pat says they probably put a D notice on the Manfred story because Alex is looking for it in the, uh, in the paper, which a D notice is the government saying like, hey, do not print this. We're not running that story. Right. Um, she kind of theorizes whatever that guy saw was also watching us. Mm-hmm. Um, this is, yeah, we learned that the man has the plague. Uh, we, have you ever, <laughs> there's a great line where he learns about Pasturia pelvis or something like that, right? That he has. And yeah, he asks, that's- yeah. Rogers and goes, who? You have you ever had Pasteria pelvis? Who? And then they laugh. It's a very genuine moment. Um we just we have a nice little moment then, like of like again, it's juxtaposed with the horrors of the man's life. But Alex and Pat go to a play, right? They get some time for some leisure. And then Rogers and Calhoun. Cheap. Yeah, exactly. Rogers and Calhoun go out drinking. Just like we have these pairs of people talking about loneliness, right? These are all people that like they have somebody in their lives. We learn that Calhoun is lonely because there's a there's a very tossed off line right before it cuts where Calhoun just says the night before Maggie died and then it cuts yeah. away. So you get he's a widower, so he is a lonely guy. We saw he lives alone, but he has a companion here. He's got a drinking buddy, right? Who and, loves pinball, and that's why you love this movie. Oh, you God. want to be Donald Pleasant's drinking buddy. <laughs> they are playing the pinball game Doodlebug, which, am, if when I get to oh, the point God. of me owning pinball machines, I will seek out that machine to own just for this movie. Um, God, okay, yes. Bartender's trying to kick him out, and I love Pleasant's is like, you know, I could arrest you for what you're doing right now yeah. if you don't commit more crimes for me. <laughs> Um, you could also be helping us. This uh, plenty of cases have been solved over a, a scotch or two. God, it's so good. He's just rapid fire, just throwing out yeah. jokes and things, and then like, you know, Norman Rossington is also just chiming in over his pinball game, which is so funny. Like, yeah. there's they have like four four empty pint glasses on the pinball machine, which is bad etiquette, but whatever. Um, it, it's so funny. At the moment where like the he and he's trying to get him out, he picks up uh, he picks up Pleasance's coat. And he's trying to hand it to him. He's like, why did you, you get, get that? that stealing from a yeah. stealing from an officer. Yeah. Um, he has the great line again, and it again, it's thematic to the movie, too, talking about society and shit. Uh stratification of class and all. Don't you realize the queen is in the far-flung empire, slinging her little guts out so you can live in a democracy? Just like, oh, look how hard our Poor little the rich queen is working for us. He yeah. accuses the bartender. And he's like, he says something about the queen. He's like, and you don't smile when you yes. say that. <laughs> it's great. It's fantastic. Again, he, it has nothing he, to do with the plot. Some, he, some, uh, I guess, tangential things with the theme of one hundred percent. Yes, and uh, society and class. And yeah, mm-hmm. I I just love that. Like going forward, the next day is that he has a giant hangover when he is needed the most. Yeah. He is his most ineffectual exactly. because 
of his own yeah um, uh, just as know, a as a button on the, as yeah. a button on the drinking scene like the bartender pushes them out closes the curtain turns around and starts doing some business and then pleasant's head pops through the curtain again when you open what time do you open tomorrow god it's so fucking good oh it's my great. god um all right olympic yes. sprinting patricia she uh they, they're getting on the train to go back home they decide hey we're getting off a station early because we don't want to go back to russell station however patricia the dumb idiot she is leaves her books leaves on the train books. alex jumps yeah. on to get the books and then get the doors closed on them so they go home separately he makes it home she's not there because when she got off at russell station or no, actually, as soon as the train leaves, yes. she gets grabbed in a really good jump scare. She gets scare. captured. Yes. Why is he Ooh. so concerned when she is not there first? He he got a stop closer to the apartment. Right. And then went to the, like, she should take a couple minutes more. Doesn't make any sense. No. I, but she's been captured yeah, by yeah, the yeah. man. Yes. She gets attacked by rats. He uh saves her heroically god yeah this is one so of good. the head off which Him is fighting, real he's, fun he's like stomping them the he's he's great. yeah he's yeah. throwing them he's throwing rest against the wall like i do <laughs> i do love this scene yeah and then the entire time she's just screaming in terror which is really upsetting um she wakes up laying on a headless corpse too which is really fucking <laughs> yeah that's pretty good too. yeah, yeah. Uh, Alex can't Alex get into the station. The An- another yeah. great Bobby, oh, yeah. though, is just like, hey, what are you doing? Down-? You know, we're going to yeah. the station. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's great. So, yes, go to the cops. Calhoun is super hungover. He's not worried about it. Pat disappearing. He's like, you know, very dismissive. Rogers comes in carrying her bag that was found on the platform. Al- Calhoun just tells Alex to go home, but he goes down into the tunnels. Uh, we have the great moment of like the, uh, the the station worker being like, "Hey, you can't just be heaping your problems on other people. If you kill yourself, it's gonna stop things up for hours." Which I I, I did oh, love that. Uh, hey, hey, buddy, life's <laughs> worth living, and yes. don't you know you would inconvenience other people? No, it's not even a life worth living thing. It's literally just, "Hey, this is gonna be a problem for us." Well, like, well, yeah. he says he, in the beginning, it's like, "Oh, it's fine," and then he gets into yeah, the, yeah, yeah. The, like the whole thing about it. I do love like Pleasants when they're looking at a file. He's, he spills tea all yeah, over. Oh, Oh, yeah. Yes, exactly. Because of it. And it just made me think how many British like police <laughs> files are stained with tea. Oh yeah, totally. 90%. Um so the entire time this the, the rat thing happens, but then he starts to try to comfort Pat, and he's like, you know, again, it's so fucking sad. It's just the, the inability he's trying to, to cut her hair, which is a really yeah. funny thing too. But he's just trying to tell her, like, hey, don't worry, like whatever. But she her terror just keeps getting the best of him, right? Eventually, he starts saying, mind the doors, which is so fucking pathetic. I have to think that... Uh, I believe George... it's singular door. Right. Mind the door. Yeah. I think you're right. Yeah. Um, So, I, I have to imagine George R. R. Martin was inspired for hold the door, Hodor, right? Hope, hey, I hope so. Um, that makes sense. Yeah. When he... When he so, he's... he's trying to get through to her it's you know she can do nothing but scream though she hits him in the head again right and runs away um he comes after her with his little carrying his little lantern screaming out mind the door just like trying to again, find her smart enough to like figure out how to work a lantern yeah yeah um <laughs> the man keeps searching for her. alex comes down into the tunnel he finds manfred's boulder hat this part does go on for a very long time this search i will say i do think this third act drags things out in a way that is a little like you know not as propulsive as the rest of the movie 
Um, but yeah, he's looking for her for a long time. Eventually, he finds her hiding in a corner. And once again, it's so fucking sad. It's really trying his absolute best to have some communication yeah. with her, right? Yeah. And he even gets to the point, of, I don't know if you caught this, he even starts saying, I, I, like he does get out two other words, but then goes back to mind the door, mind the door. She keeps refusing him. Eventually, he just gets so angry, starts ripping her clothes off. You know, it's, there's such tragedy to it, um, even as he's being obviously like, you know, assaulting her. Um, she hits him in the head again. Alex hears the screams, comes from them. They get into a fight. The man ambushes Alex, uh, but uh, but almost very quickly, Alex again gets him on the ground, starts beating him in the head in his head wound with the flashlight, which looks so painful. He gets up and slinks away. The police finally come down. Um, yep. They start investigating. After they find... everything's been solved and done, yeah, good to go. The cops roll in. Yes. Uh, they find the burial room. The man is there, again, laying over the corpse of the woman. He very weakly raises his head, then collapses after saying, mind the door one more time. They pronounce him dead. Calhoun orders everyone down to come to the tunnels to say, oh, yes, and inform MI5 we found Manfred, right? Yeah, I um, like the smugness that he says it. Yes. yes. His final well, yes. line is, what a way to live. Um, which well, is, he says of Manfred, what a way to die. Yeah. And then looks over... What a way to live. Which, again, as the outsider commentary, it's just like, it's, again, you're talking about ineffectual. It's like, okay, are you going to do anything to, like, remedy the, and now these he's just problems? now judging yeah. everything, yeah. Right, like, okay, he's just making, like, sad, you know? Like, it's just, yeah, mm. it's great. Uh, we have a long, long shot of all the officers walking out of the tunnel, right? Just, again, you probably could have trimmed this down. Again, it's 88 minutes, and they, yeah. like live in a couple moments where you're like the seven and a half minute shot great love it three officers walking down a long corridor i do like it do as we, we get, what as, is this doing i do kind of like it again as reestablishing just how isolated this this whole thing is in a way but it, yeah they walk down and then right before the credits come up we hear mind the door yell out again so mm-hmm. he's still alive all right, the British Film Institute called this the, this debut the most significant directorial debut of the year, apparently. Um, okay. I was going to go grab... Oh, I'll, you know, I'll do it when I get to my final thoughts. But I want to rate this out of uh, uh, darts holding tea bags. <laughs> well, I was going to say tea bags, so darts holding tea bags is... Tea bags! Acceptable. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, All right, I'm letting you off the leash. You know, get get it out, like vomit up whatever's in your heart. Okay, in a concise manner. Yes, I first saw this a couple years ago on the Criterion Channel. I literally just watched it, you know, um, on a whim. They had like a horror thing, horror collection for uh, October, and I was like, hey, this one sounds good. I like Donald Pleasance. Let's check this out. And I cannot stress how much it blew me away. Um, just it's it checks so many boxes for me. The cannibalism aspect, the uh, the Frankenstein aspect of the story, Donald Pleasance and his amazing performance, his best performance that I've seen ever, just dominating every scene he's in, every single line being so funny and so witty, but also so revealing about his character and the themes of it. It's an exceptionally well written movie. The guy that wrote it, Carrie Jones, again, like I said, yes. he was just kind of this like 60 beatnik type of guy who clearly yeah. had like this sort of like anti establishment sort of like 
take on a lot of things, right? And Gary Sherman is an amazing director, and this is his first film, and the camera work is, like, so confident and so creative and playful, um, even the t to times where it's not as effective, like with the Christopher Lee, Donald Pleasant scene, he's still really trying something, right? Um, really, there, so there's a really wonderful critic I've talked about before, this guy named Robin Wood, who was a very early champion of horror movie, like, you know, um, analysis, right? When all people, like, really dismissed horror as, like, cheap and, you know, uh, artless, he was a critic that really fought for the merits of horror. Um, he wrote, I have an amazing book by him that's just a collection of essays and stuff that he wrote. And he wrote about Deathline quite a bit. Uh, but he said that it vies with Night of the Living Dead for the most horrible horror film ever, in the good sense, in terms of like actually horrifying. He says, I think it is decidedly the better film. It's more powerfully structured, more complex, and more humanly involved. Its horrors are not gratuitous is an essential part of its achievement to create, in the underground world, the most terrible conditions in which human life can continue to exist and remain recognizably human. It is strong without being schematic. One can't talk of allegory in a strict sense, but the action consistently carries resonances beyond its literal meaning. Sounds very smart, doesn't it? <laughs> uh, mm. But I know, what he, I know absolutely what he means. Too Don't, smart for this podcast. Yeah. <laughs> But I, what he's essentially saying is that, like, the horror aspect of this movie is so well... It's not tossed off. It's not just for cheap scares, cheap gross-outs, right? Like, the grossness of the man is 100% vital to the story of this movie. No, and it's what it's discussing. it, yes. Absolutely. Yeah. And like I said, I think this is one of the best examples of a movie that is visualizing class disparity in a capitalist, modern capitalist society. Right, the people at the top, the OBEs and Christopher Lee, and they're one hundred percent like we are above this. This none of this concerns you. We do not give a fuck. Right, stay out of it. You have your place. You have Donald Pleasance, who's this weird in between between working class and that upper echelon, right? Who can do little but sort of commentate on it with like a snide remark, right? Um, you have like these sort of like upper middle people, like David and Alex, who. Uh, or Alex and Pat, sorry, who maybe they care, maybe they don't, but either way, they are much more protected than they realize, right? And they maybe will speak to things about this class disparity while also profiting from the privileges of not being that lower class. And then you have the, disen the, the disenfranchised, the lost, right? And the lonely, the people at the very, very bottom who have nothing, come from nothing, have zero prospects and zero possibilities for rising above their station based on how things are put together. Literally, he can't rise above his station. He literally lives in an abandoned station. He cannot rise above. Like, all of it just works together for me. Any angle that I come at this movie from, I'm like, it's brilliant. It's really brilliant. It is sad. It's poignant. It's funny. It's gross. It's like, you know, god damn it. I love this movie. Five darts <laughs> tea stained darts however i said it this movie is a fucking masterpiece i love deathline with all my heart one of my all-time favorite movies <laughs> he's able to get out right like he, he oh could, he gets out like, he leaves the station but he could even go up he just 
does not, right? But that's I mean, where, but that's where the horror, the horribleness of his appearance comes in. What right. chance does he have approaching a person on the street? He cannot communicate. No, I, he cannot. I understand. Yeah, interact it's, with normal it's, people. It's it's just like it's a, it's not a like physical barrier. It's just he is not able to. Yeah. Adapt it's, to like it's, a, a society above, his loneliness, above ground people. Yeah, his loneliness is is baked in in many ways, like his physical location being down below, right? His physical deformities, his lack of communication, his appearance, like all of it is working against him to keep him completely isolated. You know, um, just like again, even going back, and there's so many little things in this movie that feed into these themes. We talked about the loneliness of everything, all these little toss off lines, all the cuts between going from the man and the woman to Alex and Pat. And showing the differences there, what true loneliness is like versus this sort of like, you know, college age, kind of the graduate level, like loneliness. You know what I mean? Like, um, you know what I'm saying? Like the character in the no, graduate I, I is do. lonely, but he's not it's the man. There. Right. So, but I mean, even the little things like the tea bags. I mean, sorry, this is one of my favorite things about the movie. The tea bags, great, funny running bit, right? However, there's that one line you said of, oh, I've been blaming the Indians. So, yeah. This is a very British thing, yet again. But tea, obviously, is very coveted by the British. Not native to Britain, right? Right. The, the fact that Britain has such a big tea culture owes to British imperialism going into India, starting things like the Opium Wars all over the rights to import tea to Britain, hoard as much of it as they possibly can. The Boston Tea Party, right? We see how big... Tea is a huge, huge thing. Tea bags are still considered by a lot of people to this day to be a cheap, you know, very low class, low class, very right. like you know, horribly like you know, uh, like it's it's a bad thing. Tea bags are like the the lowest of the low. That you want to steep it in your tea with the bottom, all of that. The fact that he is mad that he moved the tea bags. It's the idea if you want these modern conveniences like tea bags. Well, guess what? In order to have tea that readily available, so many people had to become creatures like the man. They were disenfranchised, right. killed, murdered, pushed off. Every little convenience of our modern society creates things like the man. We are literally walking over people like that every day, whether literally on the street or metaphorically in this sense with them down below. Masterpiece. It's a masterpiece. That's my rant. I'm done. I've said it all. All of our clothing, <laughs> all of our technology, yes. It, yes. it is built upon the bones of, yeah, disenfranchise the poor. I, I think there are themes here. I don't know if they're always handled in the best way, mm -hmm. uh, whether it's the acting or just or the way that they are conveying them. Because I do, I, as you're saying all this, it is there. I don't know if it's maybe too vague or like there's not a. I mean, I don't want them to be having a giant neon sign pointing. Here is the thing we're talking about. Yeah, but I think sometimes, like at least a map or you know like. I don't need a an X marks a spot, but I at least need like this general vicinity. And I don't ever know if it, it's ever giving that. It's hinting at it. It's putting it out there all the way. One thing we didn't really talk about is there are some weird sound issues throughout this movie. There's some weird stuff, uh, yeah. Whether whether it's just like um Patricia yelling or just the way that it is echoing in these old abandoned stations we did talk about like where did they shoot this 
at an old abandoned station? Or okay, yeah. So find... they. All right. Oh yeah. There's a couple of fun things. Look, I have so many notes on the commentary too. Qu- I... Quick about that, like, like yeah. two sentences. I could do an episode two about this. Anyway, um, so yes, where they shot it. So a lot of the stuff they did shoot a lot of it in the actual tube. Um, very similar to Maniac, where they propose they went to the the two people who refused them, you know, basically said, no, you can't do this. So Gary was actually working on a different movie that also needed to shoot on the tube. So when that script for a different movie of a different genre got approved, they just snuck in the crew for Deathline. And on the last night of shooting for that other movie, they took the station representative out to a pub, got him drunk. While he was out drinking, they shot everything they needed in the tube, in in the real tube, in one night. Um, what about the abandoned one? That's the, the abandoned one, one was a was in. a real abandoned one. Yes. Okay. Uh, for some of the tube stuff, like when during the fight scene, that is the abandoned station that they redecorated to look like the modern day tube station. So it ah. was a it was a real abandoned station that they shot in. Yes. Okay. Um, Very interesting. I think I again, there's so much really to uh, like about this movie. I think the main detractors are that weird sound issue that we keep running into. Uh, the the main actors, which I think uh, could be, you know, find someone better. But you have yeah. this great greatness of Pleasance and, and Lee. I want to ask you, because this is obviously ripe for a remake in New York, where we have a female British student in New York dealing with all of this. Sure. Um, who's going to be our Donald Pleasance cop character? So not a British guy, but a New York actor. It's got to be American. He's going to be a New Yorker. I was thinking maybe like a Mark Ruffalo. That'd be good. Um, no, Dan Hedaya. Is he, he's too old at this point? Like we need the pleasant <sighs> no, like forties, fifties. I think I think he's too old. Um, is he still alive? Are we sure about that? I believe so. Yeah. Let me look um, at this. I feel like you know I. <laughs> Is this what you know? Midnight Meat Train was. I I didn't see that a little movie, bit. So, that like, kind of Bradley uh, Cooper in that in that movie. We'll talk about um, that someday. We could talk about it this month. I mean, who knows? That's, um, uh, could be. Uh, anyways, I I think it's yeah. He's alive. It's Dang up it there. Yeah. Minus like a few tweaks. I'm gonna go with three point seven. Darts holding tea bags. Um, I do really like this movie. I will probably watch it at least once more in my lifetime. I would recommend it to people, if not just these, like, crazy drunk scene with Donald Pleasance. Yeah. Uh, but I, I think it uh, it has a lot going forward. Man, and I it's wonder if this is... like, yeah. a historic moment. If you think this is direct influence to Min- Midnight Meat Train. Probably. Uh, oh, I'm sure Clyde Barker's yeah. British. I'm sure. Yeah, 100%. Okay. A uh, few yeah. other just fun facts I have to get up because they're really fun, really fun facts. Um, speaking of influence, uh, Gary is really good friends with Guillermo del Toro. Guillermo del Toro actually really championed this movie when it was being re-released in the early 2000s. Um, and so they got to know each other through del Toro's love of it. Del Toro says that he owes his career to his uncle taking him to see Deathline in Mexico when he was 11. Um, John Landis has also said that the tube scene in American Werewolf in London, that that chase was inspired by this, was a tribute to this movie, actually. Okay. Um, Jonathan, like I said, Jonathan Demi has that connection. The other weird connection, though, the producer, Jay Cantor, was friends with Marlon Brando. This is pre-Godfather. He wanted Brando to fly out to London to test to be the man. The man was almost wow. played by Marlon Brando. 
which is fucking That's two Brando connections two weeks in a row. Yeah, that's right. That's weird. He keeps popping up. Mm. Was he a cannibal? Is that how we... Is this a weird roundabout thing we learned? He did like using butter with humans, so... Oh, ooh, ooh. (laughs) Okay. Uh, Well, that's it for Deathline. I'm cutting you off. Uh, We want to welcome you to a very special event next week. It will be Thanksgiving. Uh, And we're not covering Eli Ross Thanksgiving. We are instead going to be covering the classic cannibal movie, The Hills Have Eyes. About families. Uh, Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, Very excited. It's been a while since I've seen it, but I do really remember uh, always enjoying this one. So, going to be very exciting. Is this our first? Thank you all for listening. This is our first West Craven, I believe. Yeah. No, we've done Scream. Oh, yeah. We talked about this last week, actually, I think, uh, behind the scenes. Yeah, yeah. I think so. <laughs> Whoops. Yeah. Uh, who's the one that's always high? Okay, moving <laughs> on. Uh, thank you all for listening. Please remember to rate, review, subscribe anywhere you get this podcast. Uh, we have email, weeklypodcastmassacre at gmail.com, both threads and Instagram, both at weeklymassacre. Uh, you are gandersen19 on Letterboxd. I am Murfinturf. So please hit us up. Let us know um, if you know what they say about elephants and coppers. We didn't even actually mention oh that God. line, I don't think. Yeah. So I wrote that down. He says, uh, sometimes I think coppers should be like elephants, big feet and long memories. Or is it long feet and... Anyways. <laughs> um, if you've ever rode the tube at night, or if you pick your tea bags out with darts. See, we're co- we've covered all the bases now. Um, and as always... <laughs> you can't see it, but I'm mouthing fuck you. I almost did that. Look, I have four lines I want to shout out for this. Um talking <laughs> about talking about James Manford, hey some big shit uh, shot. Hop around there and see if he's a nutter. Uh Mr. Morning meeting with the minister, naughty. Uh and then of course, finally, why don't you go back to planting pot on people? And mind you don't become a missing person yourself. I love this movie. So see, many I figured- oh. I thought you were just going to go mind the doors, so... Marshall! Teabag! Mind the doors. Marshall. (laughs) Bye. Bye.